Sorry about that. <laughs> I know you will not stop until you see us drop, till you see us go up in flames like dying stars. If you don't know me, I'm Chelsea Rodenheiser, our administrative coordinator here. Um, 
For those of you who are new, Emmaus Way is a community of people gathered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, committed to doing his work here in Durham and also in the world. Um, if you would like some information about how to connect with our community throughout the week, there is a green card in the foyer over there that has information about our small groups and our pub groups and other ways that you can get in touch with us. Uh, we have a few announcements tonight. First off, I don't see Brett, so I'll probably shoot it over to Dan. Where's Dan? There you go. There's a vigil tonight. If you need any info, you can probably just grab Dan right after service tonight. Um, thank you all for showing up. There were lots of you that came to Ecclesia last week. We had our sort of quarterly community meeting. Um, ben Haas wanted to give a quick shout-out about how that went. Yeah, so one of the big things we were talking about last week and over the past several months has been um, this opportunity to potentially move into a space-sharing partnership with Duke Memorial United Methodist Church, which is over on Chapel Hill Street. Um, you know, throughout the process, we've tried to invite a lot, of, a lot of input from the community, and we've gotten fantastic feedback, um, both you know concerns and excitement, and all sorts of things. It's been extremely helpful, and last week is a great example of that. Um, you know, the sh- sheets that we turned in, some folks from the lead team compiled those and looked in. It's it's a treasure trove of concerns, of great questions um, going forward. So, what we a couple of things that we found. One was that we did just get fantastic. Um, ideas, comments, concerns, things to ask, things to sort through with them. And the second was that we did see sort of a strong consensus that, um, you know, most folks were in favor of sort of going ahead and sitting down with Duke Memorial and having some more specific conversations to try and draft a specific agreement, what that would look like. So this doesn't mean that decisions made, but it does mean that we're going to send, you know, four or five folks um, to meet with some of their folks and start sorting out some of the details of what a a space-sharing partnership might look like. So uh, lead team staff still be happy to hear things that, additional things you think of as we go through that, but that's kind of where we're at in that process. Definitely, and if you have any questions about who's on lead team or who to contact, you can definitely start with just checking out Ben at the end. Um, we wanted to thank Daniel and Lauren for being here tonight. They are Lowland Hum, and they're here with us tonight. We got to enjoy a wonderful house concert with them last week at the Fishbacks house. It was a really great time to just be and listen and celebrate them and their music. Um, they have a show upcoming on Thursday at 9-ish. 
Yeah, I think nine-ish at Motor Co. So, and if you want any more information, I'm sure they're fine if you just want to come up and ask them afterwards. But we'd love it if some of you could make it out for that. Um, last little bit of business is if you would like to give a donation to Amazeway, we have a silver bowl in the offering. And there's also a little icon on our website that's a dollar sign on the front page. And you can click that to give an online donation. Welcome to everybody. Thank you for being here, and thanks again to Lil and Tom. We're going to move now to um, the community prayer part of our evening. And I'm going to do, um, I hesitate to call it a testimonial because that sounds so terrible. It's not what it is. But I wanted to talk a little bit as a parent about what this little section of our worship gathering every week means to me and my family. So this is something that we've started doing maybe three months or so, maybe longer than that, but we sort of started to, this was a, a vision of the art and aesthetics, but more so um, they kind of helped the children's ministry team in trying to craft an element of worship that would connect what our kids are doing back there with what we're doing here. Um, we did a song a couple of times, and this quarter, this season during Epiphany, we're doing the Lord's Prayer, and I wanted to just share that um, when we were doing songs, it was interesting how throughout the week, both of my kids uh, would randomly sing it. And it would provide such amazing conversations to talk about the lyrics or bigger questions that come along with that. Um, it gives me as a parent an opportunity to sort of ask questions about what they're doing back there. And they, they sort of have this curiosity about what we do and hear when they're in the back. Um, in addition, it just gives them sort of a place in our worship gathering to be a sort of sense of importance. And so I wanted to thank you guys for sort of slogging through the initial bumps um, and having this element in our worship gathering because I do think it's really important both for the kids to feel like they're a part of what we do But also as a parent it allows me again another point to connect with my kids So thank you so much for sharing this with us and if you would join us for the Lord's Prayer It's printed on your bulletin Our Father who art in heaven Hallowed be thy name Thy kingdom come Thy will be done On earth as it is in heaven to be with you guys again and uh, have been so blessed by your community and um, just each time we get to be together it's a gift to us and so um, thanks for letting us come and be a part of these evenings and uh, we're very thankful. One sister walks the wasteland
Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're talking uh, a little bit later today about um, uh, the friction between the coming kingdom and the present uh, state of things. And um, tomorrow is, you know, we'll celebrate Martin Luther King tomorrow. And um, I was talking with my dad today, and I. And I, we just it came up in the conversation that it uh, it is not natural for our culture to experience unity um, between races and cultures and um, income levels, but it is natural for those of us who are in the kingdom, and uh, it is completely natural for us to love, care for, and be in, be in unity with our brothers and sisters. Um, and so, and also, the Bible says that that. Every work that God starts, He completes. So um, it's, it's it, it always feels kind of bittersweet to celebrate the civil rights movement when you see the state of things. But um, 
the kingdom is coming and every uh, it's just I think together we can long for the completion of what, what has begun and, and things are very different now than they were 50 years ago and, and we can be thankful for that and, and long for uh, more of that so I just um, yeah
one of the things that we uh, had dreamed of, a few of you are back in the day, not so long ago today when you're in a kind of a new church type of thing, but one of the things we dreamed about was developing a community that where, where music and art wouldn't be kind of the metaphor to the point, you know, or the setup to the point, but would actually convey the point when the point is better conveyed artistically. And I, Daniel and Lauren, I thought tonight was a great example to remake that point because one of the things we're going to be talking about is um, uh, enmeshing ourselves in the Gospel of Mark. It's the series that we're in, and this whole idea of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, as Matthew puts it, and and it's a the kingdom idea is provokes these visceral responses of is it now is it later is it big is it small is uh, it seems good but what I see around me doesn't look good and uh, and so in some ways the the kingdom provokes reaction from us it's not an abstraction it's not a point to be graphed out on a chart it's not a theological premise to uh, recite but then not know with the whole of our spirit. And I thought tonight this is a great example of just good songwriting but the idea of the, the kingdom kind of coursed its way through those three songs tonight uh, and many of the points I think we're going to make together uh, were found in that so thank you very much for really starting the conversation and in my preference starting it in much more of an emotive way than just kind of a, a safe distance that sometimes can happen with somebody sitting with on a stool with a microphone so that was in many ways what we have dreamed about in starting our community. Another quick thing on that um, is um, I always forget to do this. I always have the handout, but I was using my iPad tonight for the music. And one of the things that's nice about that, A, uh, you get that from Chelsea if you're on the social list. So if you don't get it, that's why. And you just write us or let us know or sign up on the webpage to get that. But one of the things that we also imagine is that what we do in the worship gathering be components of our own uh, kind of spiritual lives and disciplines. So we kind of imagine music and words and prayers and things like that with ideas that you would reuse those. And uh, I know Mark and Josh have done a good job of getting the podcast completely up to date. So what that means is usually the music that we do hits the podcast on around Wednesday or so. Uh, but the nice part of having um, the lyrics is a lot of times I, I'll use the music as just a time of, uh, of prayer, an office, a midday of prayer, a season of reflection, and the words are really helpful to have with that. So it's nice to have that on my iPad. So anyway, that's always there. It's kind of what we think about every week as we're imagining the kind of the worship kind of planning process is not seeing worship as something that happens from five o'clock to six thirty and then everything else be related to worship we see what we do with the whole of our lives as potentially worship and so we want to provide you with things that help with that so anyway hey well please stand up greet each other offer each other the peace of christ uh if you're around somebody you don't know certainly introduce yourself snacks are really good I'm, i made it my mission to eat all of the pretzels with the reese's pieces on it but i'm not quite done so i will sprint to get there first but uh, i'll call us back in about two minutes I should have mentioned, because one of the things we love doing is um, almost all of our musicians that play here are working artists, and they make some or all of their portion of their living from their, their, their art, their music, that sort of thing. The songs that we're doing tonight is on the latest uh, the, the CD, so I couldn't... All but one, because I was—I I did not catch the last show, but went to the one a couple of months ago, and so I couldn't remember if it was the CD or the. But anyway, yeah. So they actually have a show coming up this week, and you guys want to? 
Yeah, Motorco. Motorco. I think you mentioned it. Chelsea, uh, mentioned. Chelsea mentioned. Right, mentioned. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we we want you we want you to be excited about these guys and hopefully be part of the, the things that they're doing because we think it's great. It's one of the reasons they're here. Um, also, just a quick uh, report. Just I, I thought I'd mention this. Um, Kenneth's not here, is he? Is he? Is he headed home? Uh, so Kenny, you know, works with us and for us um, in terms of our setup. And uh, one of the things that he does is, um, and uh, many people here have employed him on, you know, raking leaves and stuff like that. But I was, it was just exciting to pick him up today. He's got a job roofing. He's really fired up to, to, to do that. So uh, one of the things that he just wanted to report is he, he, he said, you know, I want people in a mass way to know that I pray for them. And I know that they pray for me because I have this sense that my, my life is you know, it, it very much a, a correspondence idea that God is doing good things because I've got a job. So it's exciting. To, it was fun to drive Kenneth here today and hear how excited it was for him to, to be doing some roofing. So anyway, just to remind you of that. It's a, it's a, he's a big part of our life here. You, he's, you see him more from 3 to 5, but uh, from 3 to 5 we couldn't do without him. So, hey, we have been in this conversation about Mark's gospel. And I have to make a confession before we get too far into this. Um, just stop me and raise your hand if I drift this. I'm kind of a Mark nerd. Uh, and it, I, honestly, you know, there's parts of the Bible that you read and you're like, oh my gosh, it's there. You got to. I mean, we did Joshua and Judges about three years ago, and there was a, a strong pull around the community of, Lord, please stop this series as soon as we can. I mean, we we made a commitment. One of the things we were doing is like, we got to read the hard stuff to read, and 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 you know, it just it starts bad and gets worse. Uh, reading through that. Uh, uh, Mark is on the flip side for me. Is I'm really a, if This is one of the things that I read and it makes sense to me and it engages me and it makes me excited. And, and that, I think we probably all have portions of the Bible or discipline or relationship where things that, that draw us in and things that push us back. Mark is one of the things that draws me in. So if I get too nerdy, uh, which uh, I don't often do, just raise your hand and I'll know that I'm drifting into a nerdy moment and we'll adjust. But one of the questions that we raised last week um, was, and I'll just, this is a four-point quickie summary. You can listen to the podcast to get the whole deal. But one of the reasons we're interested in this is we're interested in the idea of what does it mean to hope for, yearn for, scream for, experience the kingdom of God. And, and the Gospels are the life of Jesus and his ministry is intimately woven into statements that he made about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and Mark, the soundbite for Jesus' ministry is simply, uh, you know, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Uh, get in line with it. Join up. That's, that's kind of what he's about, so to speak. Um, now, what we saw, and again... Uh, the music did this beautifully tonight, is we made the point last week that the kingdom of God is not a, um, a, a meme or a, um, a paragraph on a website. It can't be explained that way. Jesus was all for the kingdom of God, but the next question got more complicated. When you said, well, Jesus, what is the kingdom of God? He usually started with a story at that point, and the stories that he told created tensions. It created things that were bigger, things that were in conflict with each other. You might get the impression from one story that the kingdom is really small, and you better look really carefully to notice it. And in another story, you might get the point that the kingdom is cosmic and huge and, and 
it doesn't matter what you think about it. It is rolling and coming. It's uh, that sort of thing. And, um, and, and we get the sense that at times the kingdom is really near to us. Sometimes it's really far from us. Uh, the kingdom is a mystery and it's obvious as well. So that's the kind of issue that we're talking about. Uh, and I wanted to remind us of that. Another point that we made last week, and it's one that, that you guys beautifully made this point, is that the kingdom is intended to be good news. But several people in the community pointed out how the kingdom at times has been presented as not good news. I'm certainly in that category. If you were to have captured me at sixth grade or ninth grade or any time growing up and said, um, you know, what is the kingdom of God, I would have thought, Oh crap! Something bad, but I'm on it. You know, I mean, it it was frightening. It was it was the images were frightening. The the it was it was it was it was almost the idea that it it was something that worked out pretty well for me. But I had this deep suspicion based on how it had been presented to me that wasn't going to work out well for others. And if you were to like, and I was a bit of a Bible nerd as a kid. If you were to ask me, you know, what is the gospel? What is truth? Um, I would have told you at that point that I'm saved. Um, I'm not sure about a lot of other people or things. Or I, I mean, it was not good news. I, I was sensitive enough to look around me to think that I wanted the kingdom of God to matter for everyone, not just me. But it was presented in a very individualistic way. Um, but we're going to counteract that because um, the, the gospel writers... Uh, intended this as incredible good news, kind of in the ancient tradition of heralds proclaiming something broadly on the top of a hill. The victory is won. We've defeated. We've survived. Uh, the kingdom was intended for us to, in some ways, almost encounter it in the worst of our moments and say, even in the worst of my moments, I'm living in a story that's a good news type of story. Um, one other point that we made last week is that the, this idea of kingdom of God and gospel is deeply formative in our lives. It shapes how we relate to each other as a community. It shapes what we say. It shapes what we think. It shapes our spiritual formation. So wrestling for the idea of what the kingdom is is critical for us because I think we use the analogy that if we came to the conclusion that the kingdom of God was misunderstood by everyone except for us. These 45 people here are the only people who knew the real truth. If that were the case, we would need to change our operation entirely. We would have to like really rethink what we do. Vigil tonight down the street? No way. These people don't have it right. We should be telling them they're wrong. Maybe our mission should be, again, what you think the kingdom is shapes your community formation. It shapes what you say. It shapes what you think. So I think these things are important. Let me give you just as a quick transition a little bit of a nugget for uh, reading uh, Mark's gospel. This is kind of where the nerd threat comes on for tonight. But uh, one of the things I'm hoping that we'll do in these, in these biblical texts is that we'll read them together. Because nothing excites me more than you having read this, having thought about this, and pushing back. Because you know that my intention is never to show up and tell you what you're supposed to find in a text that we're reading together. There might be things I know. There might be things I suggest. There might be things that my experience brings. But your experiences are different than mine. So I want this type of operation always to liberate your voice. Um, and so one of the things we want you to do is to read through this, uh, raise a question, contradict something that I said, speak to each other is, is always the dream with this. What you'll find when you read Mark is that it is vivid, it's concrete, 
Um, one of the things, and what I mean by vivid, is if you were to compare some Mark stories with other gospel stories, one of the things that Mark tends to do that's different is add a lot of detail. So a lot of times if people are talking about the life of Jesus or a little trivial pursuit of, I think this happened or this was reported, a lot of times that comes from Mark because Mark's telling of the same story that you find typically like in Matthew or Mark is usually more detailed. He's interested in those type of details. It's also a gospel that moves with really intense speed. Things are more detailed, but it's a shorter gospel. In fact, the word that you see is a Greek word, uh, euthus, which means immediately. There's this idea that it's always, it's moving fast. It's moving to a conclusion. The conclusion of Mark's gospel is always in the front. It's like one of those novels that uh, that you read. One of my favorite novels uh, is A Prayer for Owen Meany. If you were to read the first long paragraph of that novel, John Irving would say to you, this was the idea. I wanted to write the whole novel in a paragraph and then let it unfold over 500 pages. And to some degree, that's what Mark does, and we'll see it tonight, is you kind of get the conclusion Conclusion early and it unfolds, it moves quickly. Now, how many of you guys are John Stewart fans? Uh, I'm a, I'm, I love John Stewart, watch it almost uh, every night. What's the best thing about John Stewart for me is, is this whole idea of juxtaposition, right? You got Mark on the campaign trail and he says he hates white males and thinks that they should all die and burn in pain. And then, so John Stewart's going to show a cut of that. And then three weeks later, Mark is. Speaking to white males for a better world, and he says, I hate uh, everybody but white males. What's John Stewart going to do? He's going to put those two things side by side and just say, Who is Mark Williams? And he's just going to let it sit there. He's not going to make commentary. He's going to make a goofy face. He's going to laugh, and he's going to put things side by side that people would have thought, Oh my God, I would never want those things put side by side. This is actually how Mark writes. Not a lot of commentary, but things are put side by side that you look at and you go, oh my goodness, those two things shouldn't have necessarily been brought together. But bringing them together gives me, like for example, um, after tonight's text, which ends at around 3-6, in verse uh, 7 of chapter 3, it's really funny. Jesus is in this huge crowd, and people are following him and loving him, and he's casting out demons. He's, he's making the point that God and demons, God wins, and throwing demons out. And the demons that are coming out are saying what? This is God. He's kicking my... I mean, this, God is big. This is, this is God. And then no commentary, no transition, no cute words. We go to another scene that's radically opposite. Instead of a big landscape scene, now we're in someone's home. And it's a bunch of religious people, not the crowd. And Jesus is just saying, hey, I really like the bread the busman's made. And the religious people jump up and say, you know why he likes the bread? Because he's actually a demon. And you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. But the guy was throwing demons out. And they're like, oh, crap, he's kicking my, you know. And, 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 but in the religious crowd, all of a sudden, Jesus is a demon. And we're left with this 
Could he be both of those things? That seems kind of counterintuitive. That's how Mark writes. It's kind of funny to put it together. And that's actually one of the reasons why we're asking you to kind of read it all the way through if you can one time. Because you will always miss the humor of Mark if you just read a story. Because the thing that Mark loves is crafting a series of stories and putting them together uh, to, to kind of let them stand as a narrative, so to speak. That's what Mark's about. One of the things we'll deal with is, in addition to moving quickly, you know that feeling you have when you watch a movie and it just stops and the credits go up? And you're like, oh my God, that can't be, you cannot be stopping now. I must know, did they get married? Did the zombies win? Did, you know, what happened? It's just nuanced. Mark just writes to a certain point and stops. And he stops with this huge implication of an empty tomb. There is no Jesus running around during the credits, uh, being friendly with people and saying we won. It just stops. Uh, and that's a really interesting question. One will ask is, why does Mark write it that way? One last thing that I think you'll find here is that Mark is writing particularly, we think, particularly to a Roman audience. And he's writing during a time of persecution. So one of the things that he's imagining is that this would be comforting. Uh, that people would be asking the question, my best friend was just executed, or uh, that part of the city that we live in just burned down. We're being accused of doing this. Why would I continue to follow God? So he's raising the question of why do we hold on in faith when things look desperately ill? So that's a little bit of a, just a, a snippet of, of kind of what Mark is about. Now, if I could get some help, this out. Uh, the text, I just want somebody, if they would, to read the very first um, section. I think it's Mark uh, 2, 13 to 17. Would somebody read that for us? Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Okay, this is a story that comes up. People mention this from time. Even people who've like read only two stories in the Bible, this is sometimes one they know. Jesus had hung out with a weird crowd. Uh, Jesus ate with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. It's kind of a, a thing that people might know about Jesus. Now, as we jump in to try to understand this a bit, here's a couple things to hold in mind. If you were to read chapter 1, one of the things you're going to see is it's a really specific, precise beginning. 
It's, it covers all the things that puts Jesus on a public stage. Everything from baptism, being prepared in the wilderness. It, uh, it, there's a story that happens where he heals a leprous person at the, at the very end of chapter 1. And you go, oh, this is what Jesus seems to be about. Touching somebody who should never be touched and adding spiritual commentary to that by saying, I'm not healing this man, I'm making him clean. A spiritual language of forgiveness, goodness, something changed. So chapter 1 is a setup. It's very precisely written to say, oh, this is what Jesus is about. Now here's Mark. He's sitting at his uh, laptop and he's got... Millions of cut and paste because he was there. He was around people that were there. He's got stories about Jesus and he's just kind of thinking he's drinking a latte or maybe a bourbon or I don't know what he does when he writes, but he's being creative and he said, okay, I kind of explained what Jesus is about. Now my first section needs to say something. I've got maybe 500 stories that I could use here. And as you read chapter 2, one of the things you'll notice is Mark makes no bones of making that implication that these stories happened back to back. Mark 2, 1 through 3, 6 is five stories. They're all general. I was at a football game with Andy Brogan and Virginia Tech beat Carolina. I was at a football game with Andy Brogan and Virginia Tech beat Carolina. I was at a football, I mean, who knows the order? It just, you know, they play and they lose every year, right? And, and that's kind of the way this is written. Um, so he makes no pretenses. This is not something that happened back to back. But in his cut and paste, he picks five stories. All five of those stories, remember, this is the first section. This is where we're getting it, are conflict stories. Every story has Jesus coming against people who react negatively to him. In fact, he tends to do something that's wrong or revolutionary. People point it out to everybody who's around, and then Jesus says something in response. That is almost the norm for every one of these stories. So play Mark for a minute. Regardless of whatever you know about the Bible or the gospel or the kingdom of God, why do you think Mark starts with five conflict stories, puts them right together? This is, and Mark doesn't have big blocks of stories uh, like this. I mean, there's just a few that are like on, on a theme. He chooses conflict. Why? I mean, why not daisies and Jesus, you know, rescuing puppies and bringing them back to people? And, they're, you know, why does he choose conflict?
is conflict if you join this little Jesus cult. And I, I think how Frank Frank would feel like saying, you know what, this conflict isn't new, and in fact, this is part of the fabric <coughs> of our risen Lord. It's this kind of conflict. So what you're going through isn't new or different or special. In fact, you are in this Jesus. And the story helps them to see that way. They're not strangers to conflict. Jesus, Jesus was there, you know, embodying and dealing with that conflict or something. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's deeply sensitive. By the way, you're messing me up, Trigger, because you're not supposed to sit there. You're supposed to be like there, back there where uh, SK and uh, Luke are. You know, you're like mad at them or something. <laughs> you're, just a, you're just in a different place than I used to see you. But yeah, so Mark is deeply sensitive to his readers. So he's thinking about what, what do they need to hear. I could tell them a lot of stuff, but they don't need the puppy story. Right. What else? I mean, why does he start with conflict? Sure. So, Jesus is writing sensitively, and he's being comfortable. He's also sitting there with a cigarette and a beer and saying, you know, I have way too many of these things, and I'm going to quit here in a couple of years. But by the way, this is important. You know, and everybody's too worried about the cigarette and the beer to get the point, so to speak. And so there's something really socially wrong that's happening here in my best Al Pacino. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's kind of fun to read. Brian, you have points.
foundation, and then someone else is going to be like, are you saved? You know, do you need to give your life to Jesus or whatever? And they're going to like, tell you to be like a religious person. And Mark's like, basically going on the list, like, no, 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 he's not like that. He's not saying, like, you know, repent and join heaven. And we're like, oh, I know what that is. And Mark is like, no, you don't. It's not this, and it's actually not this, and it isn't this, and it isn't this, and it's not that. And by the end, I think people are like, well, what, what, what is it? Jesus is, in a soundbite I would say, you're making a great point. He's revolutionary. He doesn't do things right. And it's hard to attach him to whatever cultural preference we bring to the idea. He's doing something different. Now, in this story, help me here too. He is sitting down with sinners. That's the comment. Now, who are sinners? Now, we could have fun with this. <laughs> we could get like a whiteboard out and say, okay, what's really bad? You know, and then, you know, that would be part one. And then part two would be, who does that? You know, and we, we know, we, we, the mass way would not survive the conversation because we'd have the list of really bad and we'd have all of us doing those things. And that's kind of who we are. But don't miss this point. Sinners in this language is not like, he's not thinking about somebody who, I don't know, cheats on their income taxes or, or something like that. He's not thinking that. Sinners is a category of person. And it's typically a lower class category of person. Notice this is subtle, but he doesn't say tax collectors and other sinners. He's saying tax collectors and sinners. There was this rich language that if you were to talk to the scribes of the day, the Pharisees, the people that ruled the kind of religious elite, they would talk about themselves as being religiously elite. And then they would talk about, there's a great Arabic term for this, but they would talk about the people of the land. And the people of the land were sinners. They were lower social class and they didn't practice the religious stuff that they should have known that they're supposed to practice. This would be like your organic friend who says, you know what? I know some people who shop at Trader Joe's. They do not go to Whole Foods. In fact, this whole section was in Whole Foods tonight before church. And we looked around and we could see no one from this group at Whole Foods. And really a good person should be at Whole Foods. And there's really a time to be at Whole Foods. And there's certain aisles to go in at Whole Foods. And the people who do not go to Whole Foods, they are sinners. And, and, and of course, there's a tension there. This group might say... Whole Foods is expensive. I'm not sure we have enough money to shop at Whole Foods. We would love to have Oprah's chef come by and prepare all of our meals. Would you like that, Chelsea, if Oprah's chef just cooked for your family and you could watch? I mean, but you, we can't afford that. That would have been the idea that's being played out here. The people of the land are sinners because they don't practice the kind of religious practices and the kind of purity stuff that you do when you have enough time to do it. And when you're not making a living or preparing food all day long. Uh, so there's a really tense kind of class language here. What is Jesus being accused of? I, I, I can't resist this analogy because it, it just makes me laugh sometimes. But do you, do you remember during the last campaign about people who palled around with terrorists? You know, just kind of palling around, talking terrorism, so to speak. It, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, the funny part of that is this idea that 
there's this construction of terrorists. You know? And what would be that person? I mean, what would, I mean, that would be a really long conversation of why is Trigger a terrorist and Emily is not? Because maybe we could switch them and they would become so. But that's the kind of conversation that's going on here is that Jesus is eating with those people who like violence and don't shop at Whole Foods or, or however you want to play that out. So that's kind of this idea. And what's interesting in this story is that though Jesus, and you know he's bad about this, he calls the Renzes up and he says, uh, would y'all cook for me? I'm having people over. But then he claims the meal as his own. And, and so in some ways, it's not the Renzes' meal, it's Jesus' meal at the Renzes' house. And that's how it's portrayed here. Jesus is reclining with the sinners at the table. He is the host and, and people are reading this story and they're kind of going, oh my gosh, this guy not only has the wrong people there, but he's in charge of the wrong people being there. He is the host. Now, we're reading this story from this vantage point of Jesus's, these Mark is writing these stories and Jesus did them to convey what the kingdom of God is all about. And, and the table is the most common metaphor in all of the Bible of what the kingdom is about. And so Jesus is at his table reclining at the Renz's house. They've done the cooking, but Jesus is, is hanging out. And there's some, these people here came to dinner. This group right here, they're there. And, and Jesus is making a point with his presence. What is the point? What, I mean, in Jesus' kingdom, what is the table about? Yeah, there's the, whatever you do to make somebody a terrorist or not a terrorist or someone a sinner or people of the land and not us, those don't exist at the table. So yeah, he's probably done. So, he, so there are people sitting there who should be serving. There are people sitting there who shouldn't be sitting there with the people who they're sitting there with beside them. So distinctions are going away. What else happens at this table? This is where the good news part of it comes in because I don't know. How many of you guys have been hung up by a distinction? Somebody looked at you and said, you do not fit because of said reason X. We're being told those are going away. What else? What else works at this table? What do sinners need? Quote, unquote. They need forgiveness. <laughs> You know, in some way, not in, the, not in the way that I use the term, but when we think of somebody who's done something wrong, they need to be forgiven. There is no conversation going on about this of somebody saying, you know, all right, Mark, you've been a tax collector for a long time. We hate you. Um, if there's any chicken left over, you can have some, but we hate you because you've been taking the chicken first all over time. You know, there's, there's none of that going on. Is everyone, no distinction, is Deeply present and engaged. So one of the things we're learning from Mark is that this kingdom that describes Jesus' life and ministry is a kingdom of messianic forgiveness. So this table, these moments, these revolutionary encounters where Jesus does something wrong, people push back and say real religious people shouldn't do those things. Jesus is retorting and saying, in my kingdom, it works differently. Notice this. Mark's a brilliant editor. If you were to read the story before this, the story is conflict about forgiveness. 
Jesus makes a point and embarrasses some people to say that he forgives people. The story that follows this is a story where Jesus offends some people, bugs some people, and makes the point that the age of the world has changed. What worked in the past no longer works now because the bridegroom has come. The world has changed utterly. We're getting a segment of that here. Jesus is in the middle of those things saying, struggle with forgiveness, let me show you how it plays out. Uh, You think the world works with these people and the sinners, I'm showing you that that is past thinking in my kingdom. Those distinctions do not exist. Now, here's my last question for you guys tonight. Um, again, we want to read this as good news. You hear this. You see this encounter. And this was the kind of stuff. I don't know when I started reading this. Maybe when I was 23 or 24. But when I started reading this, it was the first time I pushed back and said, you know what? There is actually good news here. This is actually fun to read. And, and, I, and I, I've never had it presented that way, but this makes me smile. If you were to receive this text as good news based on the life that you've lived, who you are, where you've come from, what you care about, why, would, why might it, this is kind of maybe asking for a testimonial side of this, but how might this be good news to you specifically, who you are? Not an abstraction, but who you are. How might you hear this as good news? So we're free, that's well said, we're free to breathe a sigh of relief because there's usually a point of exclusion that's going to get all of us at some point. 
And, um, and what do you do most of the time in good social settings? You don't share what makes you the most vulnerable person that you are, right? But you're saying it's okay. That is good news. Somebody else, I mean, what makes this potentially good news for you? I mean, isn't that a great feeling when you're around a friend or two who really knows you and you do not have to explain yourself? You do not have to take something halfway back and polish it up a little bit because you're known, your story's known. That's a good thing. One more, something that might make this good news. Okay. There's a bar set in loving in a way that we really don't want to love each other, right? And, and that's, a, that's a great thing. It forces us to love according to this standard rather than all of the shortcuts that could, that could push us back. And, it's, and, and there is some great news to say, perhaps there is a space for me where I can be loved even though I'm on a loser streak that has gone for several months. These things are not going well for me. Um, you're going to see this theme unfold. One last thing as these guys are getting ready to lead us into confession and absolution is um, you know, part of the reason we're reading this is to receive it as good news about God's kingdom. I, I thought about this all week long. Is the, Two questions. How is it good news to us personally? And then corporately, we'll come up with this several times. What should we be doing as a group of people that fosters this type of kingdom life? And, and I think we've done some wonderful things together, but I would never want us to kind of like say, oh, we, okay, we've done that. We can, we can let that go. We should always be thinking and dreaming. I, I thought this was the perfect text to put on top of the vigil tonight. Because that, that vigil tonight, to me, strikes me as a counterintuitive, ridiculous kind of kingdom thing to do. That if you're at this kind of table, you might do something like that. Because what do we do about violence? We tend to try to look the other way. Because if you get too close to it, then it might fall on you, right? We certainly don't want to think violence is something that happens in our community or our neighborhood or people close to us. We don't want to think about violence being racialized in any way, form, or fashion. We don't want to take people who perpetrate violence with people who are victims of violence. Because it might imply that you, me, we're perpetrators of violence as well as victims of violence as well. And so I thought the, the, the vigil tonight is a great example of, of somebody who's just saying, 
Maybe there's a crazy different way to think about this world that we live in where we actually name the things that have gone wrong and, and, and name ourselves as part of the things that have gone wrong and collect ourselves around people who might be hoping for something better. That's the kind of imagination that I think Mark at his laptop was thinking about as he was editing stories, kind of going, wouldn't it be great if people read something like this and they said, I'm in, it's okay, I am a bad follower of whatever, but I'm in and I'm received. Or people would read this as groups and say, what can we do because we have freedom to do something? Or people would read this as groups and say, it is all falling on top of us, but it might be worth holding on even though it's all falling on top of us. Uh, I think Mark writes to inspire our imagination. And as we read through this, I think you'll find many places where that indeed happens. Um, Daniel and Lauren, why don't you guys lead us in our confession and absolution tonight. And Dan, are you taking us to the table tonight? That'd be great.
See? 
As we've said before, um, I think in our day and age, at least in our country, uh, one of the reasons why so many of us love comedy is because in some sense that's the only t- place you can get the truth anymore, <laughs> or some version of the truth that's not uh, you know, kind of uh, absolutely tainted by uh, some ideological agenda uh, in some sense. Um, and if you think about it, like one of the things that, you know, these shows that uh, I don't know if all of you watch these, but like the Stewart show, which we talked about, or Colbert or SNL, one thing that comedy does, which is so great, is that a lot of times it takes what we think of as normal, uh, the normal messages that come out in our everyday lives and in the media and kind of throughout the week. And, and it, a lot of times, the comedy of it is that it takes those things that we think of as so normal, whether it be a socialite, a p- politician, or somebody else in our culture, and it just blows them up into absurdity. The things that they're saying, it just kind of piles it on and piles it on and piles it on until what, what is actually being said, the absurdity just becomes like so obvious that you can't help but chuckle. And... One thing that stuck out to me about reading this passage tonight is that, uh, in some sense, Jesus leads with the absurdity. Uh, if you think about it in the passage, that uh, you know what is normal in the culture and what people would expect are things that are completely blown out of proportion by the way in which Jesus leads. Jesus comes in and begins with leading with the absurdity of sitting down with the tax collectors, the sinners, by setting tables up where tables should not be set, by engaging with folks who should not be engaged with. And in some sense, I thought, you know, obviously the table's presented in the passage, so it's a great lead for us to our own table tonight. But I think in some sense, it also sticks in front of us that absurdity, the kind of leading with absurdity, of becoming a people that in our culture and our day and age don't start off with our ideological agendas, don't start off with our sense of, hey, look, if you want to get things together, here's the agenda, here's how you take it. But we start off as a people who just begin setting up tables. And we begin as a people who in some sense start with the absurd and then let the conversation roll out from there. Uh, One of the things I think is so beautiful about when Daniel and Lauren lead us is that it kind of takes on this feel of a house concert. And I think as we move to the table, kind of moving from this notion of listening, engaging, talking, sharing, 
that that sense of the table having been set for us is richer and deeper because we've listened with one another, talked with one another, and in some sense, in a, in a weird way, kind of started with the absurd. That this gathering is in some sense what God is about in the world. It's not the only thing, but in some sense this really is a vivid marker of what God is about. At Emmaus Way we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come, break bread with one another, share it with one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you, pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you, and do that recognizing that the grace of God is present in an absurd way. As we sit at tables, as we host at tables, as we engage at tables, and certainly as we share these gifts of God for us, the people of God. The grace of God be with you. Welcome to the table.